Hello, good afternoon and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and to the Scottish Power Studio Theatre for this special Lived Lives event. I think it's appropriate that that's in the plural since this biography was almost called The Nine Lives of Muriel Spark. My name is Willie Maley and I'm delighted to introduce Professor Martin Stannard of the University of Leicester, author of Muriel Spark, The Biography published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Martin. Okay, can everybody hear me? Yeah. Um, the, uh, the idea of this is that I give a reading for 20 minutes, and then uh, I think I have 20 minutes of interrogation from Willie. And then, <laughs> and then it's open to the audience to ask questions. So uh, what I'd like to do is to start by reading um, the beginning of the book. <clears throat> and perhaps by way of preface, I could say that um, the shape of this book was very important to me. Um, it's not something reviewers seem to have picked up on. But nevertheless, one did. <clears throat> um, the, the idea was that the shape of the book was a figure of eight that it was like the symbol for infinity, which is pretty much how I conceived of Muriel. Um, so it starts, as it were, with a prolepsis, with a, a sort of flash forward, and it locates Muriel in the North British Hotel, waiting for her father to die in the Royal Infirmary. And then at the very midpoint of the book, at the end of chapter 10, we come back to that. And then at the end of the book, we come back to it again. So the narrative trajectory in an ideal world <laughs> is that it goes like this in a kind of continuous loop. <clears throat> so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the beginning of the book, then I'm going to leap forward to the end of chapter 10, um, just to give you an idea. Because what happens here is that there is, at the beginning of the book, an unresolved story. And the story is, what was she doing in the North British Hotel when all the rest of her family were gathered together in the family flat in at 160 Brunsfield Place. So, here we go. <clears throat> Muriel Sarah Camberg arrived in the middle of the night, 3 a.m., 1st of February, 1918, and immediately became her parents' princess. Later in life, she would occasionally amuse herself with the fantasy that she was a real princess, kidnapped by gypsies, her parents. She saw her life as a Cinderella story, and Rossini's La Cenerentola was not one of her favorite operas for nothing. How she had emerged from that family intrigued her. She was born in a small rented flat at 160 Brunsfield Place in the Morningside district of Edinburgh. Her brother, Philip, had made his appearance in the middle of the day, five and a half years earlier, down the hill and round the corner, in another flat in Viewforth. He welcomed his new sister guardedly. As they grew up together, this emotional distance increased, and they remained night and day to each other for the rest of their lives, uncomplimentary and sometimes spelt differently, uncomplimentary opposites. <clears throat> My brother, she remarked to me, is like a Chekhov short story. When you meet him, you'll know what I mean. 
During April 1962, with the great success of the prime of Miss Jean Brodie behind her and life as a celebrity ahead, she began to reflect on all this. She was back in Edinburgh, attending her father's deathbed in the Royal Infirmary. What was she doing in the elegant North British Hotel when her mother, brother and son were gathered in the family home? By hitching her legs up onto the windowsill of her room, she could prop herself on one side or the other. The broad sash was lifted, opening to the left on the craggy outcrop of Arthur's seat, to the right on Prince's Street Gardens, just coming into bloom in cold spring sunshine. Above everything lowered the castle, erupting between the old town and the new. This brutal caesura dividing the tangle of ancient closes from the rational elegance of 18th century town planning seemed to her somehow symbolic. There was a link, as yet still an abstraction, between the topography of Edinburgh and the topography of her mind. Most people in her circumstances would have been saturated in melancholy, but Muriel was not like most people. Her response to the world was rarely one of self-pity. She was an artist, a channel through which impressions could flow, a cold medium. At moments like this, when she could feel an image crystallizing, the thrill of creation isolated her from the injuries of the terrestrial world. And she would give herself up to the process, never knowing where it might lead. On this occasion, she felt what she called an inpouring of love. Not an outpouring of love, very interesting, an inpouring of love <clears throat> for her native city, or let's say from her native city. Its style, its tricks of speech, its provincial puritanism and cosmopolitan auteur. It was the city itself, rather than her family, that had nurtured her as an artist. She belonged nowhere was determined to belong nowhere and to no one. It was Edinburgh, she wrote, that bred in me the condition of exiledom. And what have I been doing since then but moving from exile into exile? This wasn't a lament. Exile for her, as for James Joyce, was the natural condition of the artist. It has ceased, she wrote, to be a fate. It has become a calling. Edinburgh was her Dublin redolent of escaped impositions, yet bred in the bone of her art. It was the locus of conflicting memories, of those who had tried to impose guilt for the audacity of claiming independence, of the solid pleasures of a well-regulated pre-lapsarian life. Her father, Bernard, or Barney Camberg, was a Jew. Her mother, Sarah, or Sissy Camberg, nay, Uzzel, a woman of eclectic religious tastes, had been brought up as a Christian, but, probably to please Barney, had married him in a synagogue. <clears throat> it was a liberal-minded, happy-go-lucky family. Having married out, Barney maintained an unswerving devotion to his wife and daughter. There were others, Muriel felt, who had betrayed her. And as she looked out over the city, she realised that this unexpected welling up of affection was, as she put it, psychologically connected with love for my father, 
and with the exiled sensation of occupying a hotel room meant for strangers. Unquote. Now that he was dying, she would soon, metaphorically speaking, be homeless. She had cast herself out as a young woman and had never wished to return. Nevertheless, Edinburgh was the home which had made her independence possible. And for her, all the positive qualities of home centred on her father. The day of his death, the 21st of April 1962, was for Muriel something of an epiphany. And the necessary metaphor centering on the castle began to take shape. Quote, to have a great primitive black crag rising up in the middle of populated streets of commerce, stately squares and winding closes, is like the statement of an unmitigated fact preceded by, nevertheless, the speech habit she now remembered, which had always fascinated her when listening to her teachers or to the murmuring, tight-lipped women in mushquash coats taking tea at McVitie's, was what she called that final word of justification, nevertheless. <coughs> My whole education, she wrote, in and out of school, seemed even then to pivot round this word. I approve of the ceremonious accumulation of weather forecasts and barometer readings that pronounce for a fine day before letting rip on the statement, nevertheless, it's raining. <laughs> <coughs> I find that much of my literary composition is based on the nevertheless idea. I act upon it. It was on the nevertheless principle that I turned Catholic. Edinburgh had taught her this epitomised paradox. It was a grand European city. Nevertheless, for her, it was provincial. It was her home, had given her a strong civic pride. Nevertheless, she was in terms of class, and her father's religion an alien. It had instilled in her a fundamental feminism and exactness of mind. Nevertheless, she was not a political feminist and she was first, last and always a poet. Human beings could organize themselves into complex and comfortably self-justifying structures, towns, families, languages, systems of manners and authority. Nevertheless, in the midst of everything, and usually ignored, reared the savage, as she put it, unmitigated fact of death. This ultimate point of reference, of departure, had fascinated her since adolescence. She had always been a watcher, silently recording the antics of anyone who swam into her gaze. Now the sustaining fiction of her childhood, supportive family, was dying with her father. But although she could look out on the city with the nostalgia of one who was grateful to have known a place where she had once felt safe, she knew that the last shadow of its unqualified love was fading. From that point, she was on her own. And she began to make arrangements to live abroad. It was the hinge of her life, the point at which the second half of her existence began to rewrite the first. Felled by a stroke, <coughs> Barney was in the Royal Infirmary. When he asked why the rabbi didn't visit, Muriel lied 
and said that he had come while Barney was asleep, privately putting down his non-appearance to the fact that her father was too poor to merit attention. It was the Church of Scotland minister who helped him lay his bets on the horses. Then his condition deteriorated. He became delirious with palatal palsy, what her brother described as a stroke in the throat, and any hope of recovery faded. On the night of the 21st of April 1962, Muriel was jerked from sleep in her hotel room by the telephone bell. A nurse was speaking. Her father was dead. Half dazed, she received the news dispassionately and walked to her window. In the darkness, the castle loomed as if one might have expected otherwise. There was a calmness about Muriel in the face of death. She had been brought into the Catholic Church by reading Cardinal Newman. In times of trouble, he was her resource. Lately, I'd been rereading Newman, she wrote to me during another crisis in 1995, the apologia and the letters. It was good to come across memorable phrases, still fresh, such as 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt, and what do I know of substance or matter, just as much as the great philosophers, and that is nothing at all. What wonderful English prose, how lucid. In this lucidity, she had discovered distance and acceptance. Distance from a mess of torturing emotions. Um, acceptance of spiritual and corporeal corruption. On the back of an envelope containing an otherwise jolly letter to Shirley Hazard, she'd recently scribbled a version of Newman's famous edict <clears throat> We're all implicated in some vast primordial catastrophe. I think Newman actually said Aboriginal catastrophe. He's talking about original sin, of course. And the concept of original sin coloured her whole view of life and had released her from depression into a relish for human absurdity. But while this detachment allowed her the space to become a great comic artist of the macabre, it had also separated her from the comfort of sentimental intimacies. Back home again, having buried the dead, she wrote to one of her new American friends, <coughs> Ned O'Gorman, the poet. My father's funeral was our first warm day. A man he did not like fell into his grave. Such coolness might be mistaken for insensitivity. In fact, the reverse was the case. There is no disguising the wound inflicted by this death. My father, she wrote, had more affection for me than anyone else. So that is gone out of the world. I loved him and miss him very much, she informed Shirley Hazard. Lots of family problems at the moment, but they will dissolve with time. Knowing little of the religious requirements, Muriel left arrangements for the Jewish funeral to her brother, Phil. And shortly after the ceremony, however, he had to return to America. It was then that full force of these family problems came home to her. Her mother had a saying, a son's a son till he gets a wife, but his daughter's a daughter all her life. Like his, her father, Muriel had a tidy mind. Her mother's affairs were chaotic. Unnerved, 
She wanted to become dependent on her vigorous daughter. Mira was famous. Brodie had just been published. <coughs> she appeared to be rich. She would sort things out, take over where father had left off. Not if Muriel could help it. At first, Muriel had stayed with Sissy and Robin, appalled by what she had found. Her mother was drunk, the flat a shambles. Muriel got a bucket and the scrubbing brush, went down on her hands and knees and scoured the kitchen floor. Robin had helped, but was, she thought, distinctly sullen. Periodically, he would go off to his father's house. Muriel did the shopping and each day sat by Barney's hospital bed. At that stage, no one knew whether Phil planned to come over from San Francisco. He had been contacted, but had confirmed no arrangements. Then Robin apparently sent a wire. Come immediately, spare no expense, mum will pay. That at least is how Muriel remembered the message. <clears throat> she was enraged, refused to pay. Her brother had an excellent job and had done little to support his parents. Everything she felt had fallen on her shoulders and would do in the future. She had no intention of subsidising him. In the event, Phil had acted independently and was embarrassed by Robin's telegram, but it was a sign of worse to come. Before Phil's arrival, Robin and Muriel had another argument. You get out of here, she later recalled him saying. You've got to go. Whatever may or may not have been said, that is how she came to be alone in the North British Hotel, sitting in a window seat as she contemplated love, death and exile between visiting hours at the Royal Infirmary. She felt excluded from her childhood home and shortly afterwards went to live in New York. Thank you. <clears throat> so tempted there to put my prepared questions aside, <laughs> but, but I'll begin. The Stannard biography will be the standard biography, I think, for many years to come, unlike the Stanford biography. And as a Sparkian, I want to thank you for this big arched window into Muriel's life. Though you say you call Spark Muriel throughout the book, although you say she wasn't a friend. So I hope you don't mind me calling you Martin. No, of course not. <laughs> Question, because questions of form and, and friendship and formality seem central to her <coughs> work, and since you are a, a professor, I wondered if you might begin with Spark's seriousness, but also her mischievousness, her, her playfulness, because you said she was a popular author mm. who was also extremely cerebral and, 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 and serious and, and experimental and so on. Those are two sides of Spark that I think are brought out beautifully in, in the biography. In the children's story that Spark published in 1968, The Very Fine Clock, Ticky the clock keeps time in Professor John's house. And Professor John and his four friends, professors to a man, decide to honour Ticky by making him a professor. Ticky declines, saying, Professors, there is an old saying that my grandfather told me, heart speaks to heart. And this is true of all of us in this house. And so, my dear professors, I must decline to be Professor Ticky. My fellow clocks would never feel the same about me. They would think I had become too grand for them to talk to, while I would feel very much left out in their company. Please do not think me ungrateful. Spark's intricacy and excellence, it seems to me, 
is in all her, 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 her work. And this short passage contains many of her concerns, home and homely wisdom, time, fellowship, affairs of the heart, the risks of becoming too grand, and, and solitude. Because you, you use the talk about her being alone several times in the biography, mm. eh, 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 but not necessarily eh, eh, lonely. Mm. When I first read this, I wondered if Spark had herself declined a professorship in the States. <laughs> Um, when she did, she did teach, I take it, as a professor of creative writing at, mm. at Rutgers. She may have had a head for business and is one of the, this last century's cleverest writers. But do you think it is true to say that Spark, like Tiki, is a writer who speaks to the heart? I, I, I think she does, but I think very obliquely, as it were. Um, I think you're right in saying that she's a very cerebral writer. Um, I think what's important in her work quite often is what I describe, perhaps lamely, but um, as a as distinction between mankind's, mankind's time and God's time, which would be the connection with the clock. So I guess, you know, in that story, the professors would be the people who are dealing with data and, and the clocks somehow are associated with this more abstract realm of, of time. And I think that... Um, she had a, I gave you a lecture this morning which I tried to talk about some of this, but um, <coughs> there's, um, there's a problem. Um, I think she has a problem with God. She's in no doubt that she believes in God, but God is a problem to her. And that phrase, the only problem, is, of course, the title of one of her novels. And something which runs throughout her work. And that only problem is, how can there be a benevolent and omniscient God while at the same time we have no choice but to recognise that there is ubiquitous suffering? So in a late interview with John Mortimer, she said, I see you interviewed the two aunties, um, uh, Basil Hume, and I can't remember who the other one was, but uh, you know, the, the head of the Church of England and the head of the Roman Catholic Church, in England, and she said, uh, um, and uh, you asked them about the Holocaust, and they didn't give you a, a proper answer, because what they should have said, she said, was that God is either good, A, good, B, evil, <laughs> or C, indifferent. And my guess would be, she doesn't nail her colours to the mast there, but my guess would be that Muriel would plump for indifferent. Um, and uh, the Mortimer sort of presses her on, on God. And she, he, and, uh, she says um, that she thinks that, um, effectively, she says she thinks that God is simply unknowable. And there's, there's an important review that she did of Jung's answer to Job um, in the Church of England newspaper before she'd actually become a Catholic. And uh, there's, there's a really important phrase in that, I think, where she says, um, that she thinks that the, the, the problem that the Book of Job raises, and the Book of Job is immensely important to her, she read and reread it all her life, <coughs> was amazed that it was ever accepted into the canon. And um, that the, the problem was that um, it is at this point, as she puts it, that the anthropomorphic notion of God breaks down. In other words, it, it just doesn't work. If you want to construct God as something like another human being with the normal kind of sentimental leanings and 
you know, all the kinds of things that, that we, we normally think of as, as being essential to conducting human life in a civilised fashion. Uh, it just won't work. Those two things won't fit together. So I think that what, what she tries to do is to convey the sense of God as unknowable. So there, is, there are two kind of time spheres in her books, I think. One is the sphere of human time. And she's very good at that. She researches her books very carefully. They're full of material detail, which is very carefully observed. Uh, of course, she's brilliant at, at dialogue and at capturing precisely the discourse of different little language communities. Um, but there's another sphere as well, and that's the metaphysical sphere, which is lying in the background of the books all the time. So in many ways, you know, I sometimes felt, I didn't tease this out in the book, but I often felt that she was more like Blake than Dickens, really. <laughs> She's a visionary writer. And she said once, um, uh, I'm no good as a writer unless I can write according to this queer dictatorial sense that I have. So although she didn't, as it were, literally hear voices which she transcribed, there was a sense in which um, these voices, as it were, well, she heard them all around her all the time. She was always mentally tape recording them but also that she felt that she was being spoken through, as it were. Okay, you said Blake, you could also say Milton, yeah. who had a pro problem yeah, with God. Yeah. Mm. But I think Spark and Faith, her faith is clearly something that's, that's got a relationship to, mm. to her fiction, to, to her writing. But you do say in the biography that, that she couldn't be simply described as a Catholic novelist, she mm. wouldn't have saw herself as a Catholic novelist, she wouldn't have saw herself as a Catholic sitting down to, to, to write. But I wondered if, just as Tiki had his fellow clocks to think about, in The Abyss of Crew, Alexandra says, that she, she says, quoting Pound, that she longs for mine own kind. Mm. Spark had a problem with priests. She had mm. a problem with God. Mm. She had a problem with a, a, an interesting take on nuns, and she thought of being <laughs> a, 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 a mm. nun. But I just wondered, who, who were her own kind? And as a Catholic convert, was she so... She was quite critical of cradle Catholics. She was, quite, she, she was not an uncritical... Catholic. No, no, and that comes through in her first novel, The Comforters, you know, with the, with the gloriously awful Georgina Hogg, uh, who's both physically and mentally repulsive. Um, and um, she's the cradle Catholic. Uh, the, uh, so as soon as she became a Catholic, she found that she had difficulties dealing with uh, a sort of unthinking faith. And there's quite a long letter that I quote about how doubt was crucial to her faith. You know, that all thinking people would define people by going to the waters of doubt, as it were. And um, it's very important, I think, about Mira. So she, she took nothing for granted. She was always thinking on her feet. Um, she, she was not the kind of Catholic who could simply accept dogma. Um, various people during the course of her life said to her, come on, Mira, you can't just make it up as you go along. You know, this is a faith which has very distinct dogma. Either you believe it or you don't believe it. You know, and, and she would have encountered, she did encounter, like George Nicholson in New York, she encountered people who were lapsed Catholics and who were lapsed Catholics because they could not accept the dogma. But for Muriel, there were aspects of the dogma which she simply didn't accept, didn't care about it. She did, saw no reason why there shouldn't be female priests. She saw no reason why there shouldn't be contraception. Um, lots of things. Um, generally speaking, as, as you say, you know, she found priests to be sort of dumbers down um, and later life objected to priests sort of lecturing old ladies about birth control and this kind of thing. <laughs> <coughs> um, and um, 
so she just, uh, she did kind of make it up as she went along. She took what she wanted from it and left the rest. And I think she did that because she probably thought that the, what, what you were actually getting by way of dogma through the church was a kind of fiction that had grown up over the centuries. The essence of the faith, you know, her relationship to God, what she was getting out of the Bible, what she was getting out of Job, all that kind of stuff, that was intense and deeply felt. But <clears throat> she wasn't going to be told what to do by any priest. So. I think it's interesting because you've got a lovely line in there. I think it, I think it is a quote from Muriel where she wants to be seen as a, or, or maybe she, she wants to be seen as a high priestess. And I thought of that mm. in relation to Joyce saying the writer is a priest of the imagination. Mm. Yeah. But but in terms of, I mean, you, you started with her father's death, and obviously men played an important mm. part in, in 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 her life, and often a problematic one. You've got a nice thing about how in men invariably proved inadequate, mm. and she made bad choices. She chose her husband. Mm. She didn't choose her son, but her, her son was a consequence of the choice she made mm. in choosing her, her husband. Mm. An interesting thing that comes through, not unfamiliar in other contexts, about the mother was the mother's favouring of the son, the grandson, and even of, of, of Stanford, mm. of, if you like, the, the, mm. the boyfriends. But I wonder if you wanted to say something about the ruinous and harmful effect that men had on her progress a, a, mm. a, a, as an artist, but also the fantastic fun that she had in the... Well, I think she has something to say about this in Loitering with Intent. Um, and it's along the lines of, you know, well, you do encounter some awful people, but unless you've encountered these awful people, there'd be nothing to write about. Um, <clears throat> so, in a way, what it does is to help, as long as you're strong enough, it helps to define rather than ruin you. Um, so, perhaps, you know, Loitering with Intent and the Far Cry from Kensington, you know, she finally has the strength, as it were, to write these men out of her life. Um, um, I mean, one of the things that interested me was, that in some ways, Stanford wasn't as bad as she made mm -hmm. out. Um, Stanford was a curious character, <laughs> um, but he he looked after her um, when she when she fell terribly ill and had this breakdown. He was the one who took charge of her life and who acted as a kind of agent for her, um, who raised the plight fund so that she could have money to go away and write the comforters and so on. But it was a difficult relationship. Um, uh, who knows for what reason? But um, I think he was, he was far too weak for her, for a start. Um, she was a very, very powerful personality. Um, but there is no question, really, when you read those letters between Stanford and Muriel, that they were very fond of each other uh, for a long time. And um, that was something she wanted to forget. But it was true. I mean, I, I have no, in no doubt about it. Um, so that, that was a kind of difficulty. Mm -hmm. You asked earlier, you know, who were, you know, who these people were, who were her own kind. Mm -hmm. And I think the answer to that is the race of artists. Mm -hmm. uh, she felt at home with other artists of whatever kind. And she thought that artists were effectively, you know, the priests of our culture. Mm -hmm. um, most people she found rather difficult to deal with except in very short doses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she, she, she was very easily bored. Yes. <clears throat> Another thing that occurred to me when I, when I was reading it was, I wouldn't say you were at all defensive or protective, but I wondered, your biography of war was a kind of calling card because Mu Muriel read that 
mm. loved it, wanted and wanted you to write her biography. Mm. But when I was reading this, I was thinking there is a spectrum, and the spectrum has got sexism, misogyny, but the spectrum mm. might also have on it gallantry and chivalry and, and so, so on, and, and even respect. And I wondered if you, as biographer, felt differently disposed towards, you know, is it, the, is it a vindication of a woman writer, in other mm. words, and for her, clearly there are sexual differences, gender mm. differences. Mm. But I wondered if writing this biography, you felt more pressure to, to, to interpret favourably some of Muriel's actions than with the war, that's just something. I like. think that there is there's certainly pressure on a male biographer of a female subject. It's dangerous ground. Yeah. Um, and um, so I was, I was very careful to uh, get a, a wide spectrum of female readers, <laughs> some of whom are in the audience, um, to go through it and to tell me in the most, you know, Frank fashion, if they felt that I was dealing unfairly with her, um, and um, so that was certainly something I, I wanted to avoid. I also, I mean, there's the other issue, which is, of course, you're dealing. Well, I was dealing for most of the time with a living subject, um, so you have to be, you know, mm -hmm. reasonably um, decorous. But uh, what I didn't want to do was to produce something which was a piece of hideous sycophancy. Yes. And I don't think I have, but um, it's obviously it's quite difficult with a living subject. But um, I, I, Muriel, I think, was a, was a tough cookie. And uh, she, I think there was a sense in which she wanted to appear as a kind of nice Edinburgh lady with a hanky up her sleeve. Um, <laughs> nobody like that could possibly have written these books. Mm. <laughs> Um, <coughs> so I, I felt in a curious position of trying to um, trying to, to defend her in a sense, defend her, her kind of attractive volatility, to, to my mm -hmm. view, you know, um, <coughs> where sometimes she wanted to, you know, get rid of that kind of stuff. So I, I did defend it. Because you talk about her as, as part, part nun, she wanted to mm. be a nun, and also the, the tigress, yeah. the, these two different... Um, sides to her. Um, one other thing I was going to ask you was, towards the end, of you start off by saying she asked you to, to write about a writer's struggle. Yeah. That's what she wanted you to write. By the end, I felt at a certain level that you were saying, talking more about her genius and inspiration and, and so on. And I did want to, to ask you, there's the fact that she saw writers as pu minor public servants and so on. In, in other words, there's the kind of modesty that she had. No, she and didn't, was the she didn't she, see that. She didn't the see publishers that. Publishers saw it. That, that was a very it. funny letter that she wrote to Macmillan, uh, where she said, I realise, of course, that Macmillan regard authors as failed uh, applicants for the Foreign Office or something <laughs> like that. Because <laughs> they were a very posh firm, of course, in those days. Um, and the, you know, the Prime Minister was soon to be back in charge of, um, of the firm. So that, that was her, as it were, talking as high priestess to Macmillans, who she thought had treated her pretty badly, mm -hmm. uh, not paying her enough, not giving her enough publicity, and so on. And she had a case, of course, mm -hmm. because there were, um, th she was, at this stage, this was sort of at the beginning of her career as a novelist, and she was producing, um, in my view, one work of genius after another uh, with incredible rapidity. I mean, she suddenly burst upon the scene with the comforters. And then within four or five years, she'd written five or six books, all of which will last, including, I think, Robinson, her second novel, which isn't much talked about now, but 
which is absolutely fascinating. And The Bachelors, another brilliant novel. Um, <clears throat> she usually had one novel being published, another novel already finished, and a third one quite a long way along the, along the line. So Macmillan are finding it quite difficult to keep up with her um, and trying to persuade her to slow down and be a bit more like C.P. Snow. Um, but she refused to do this, and so she had kind of blazing rows with Macmillan for one reason or another. Um, and, and one reason was that she felt that they, they didn't understand her work and they weren't marketing it properly. Um, so that, would, that letter was, was not her saying, um, you know, we have failed civil servants and being modest. It was quite the reverse. It was her that, saying, that's we me are the high priestesses. That's disappointed when me greatly. <laughs> I like the minor public servant. I like the fact that she went to Harriet Waugh and did managerial writing. I like the fact that she was in yeah. political intelligence. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that, that, that the kind of a slow well, there is that side she liked of it, through yes. editing. And also yeah. something that comes through was her generosity with other writers. Yeah. Of course, you get that mm. in Far Cry when he, he, Mrs. Hawkins tells the general he should get a cat that will help, yeah. help him to write, of course. It helps him today. It was not a very good book in the end. Mm. But what, one, one question, that, that my, my final question before we open it up, and it's, uh, uh, I know you've been asked this before, but it is about, if you like the Jane Austen question, Muriel and sexuality, sisterhood, women, mm. the women in her life. There's actually an amazing moment in The, uh, uh, the Mandelbaum Gate when Barbara Vaughan, the 39-year-old uh, 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 Catholic convert, half Jew, has had an unspoken agreement with Miss Ricketts, Ricky, mm. her fellow teacher, who's described in kind of a garish manner as this mm. kind of hairy and rather brutish woman, who, but, 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 but Barbara has realised she's got an unspoken agreement that when they retire, they're going to go and live together, mm. that this is something that's going mm. to, to, to happen. But really, it's not something she's consciously agreed to. Yeah. And clearly, she's uncomfortable with it because she's over tracking down her archaeologist <coughs> boyfriend to get his divorce cleared so that she can, she can marry mm. him. But, but, so I just wanted to ask that question about... Muriel is preoccupied in very many of her works by homosexuality mm. and, and, and depicted mm. in interesting ways. I just wondered what you wanted to say yeah, about and that. Indeed, I mean, most of her friends in later life were gay. Um, she was absolutely adamant, and sort of funny about it, you know, that, that she, she wasn't gay. Um, now, of course, there will be people who say, well, she would say that, wouldn't she? Um, <coughs> I don't think she was, actually. Um, I think she came from that, I mean, I, I, my m own mother had friends who were very much like this um, in the 1930s. Um, and lots of her friends, female friends, ended up living together. Um, and they came from a kind of generation of intellectual women who were somehow kind of, or some of them anyway, were unhappy in their relations with men. They just didn't like the sort of flesh and blood fumbling side of why? all that kind of thing. I don't know why, but anyway. Um, and they, they just thought life was cleaner and neater and better organised if you stuck with your own kind. As it were. Um, but that wasn't necessarily a sexual relationship. And I think there is a great tendency these days to um, come up with a sort of fashionable notion, you know, that uh, uh, everybody's either gay or straight or, or, you know, or maybe bisexual, whatever. But I think the truth of the matter is that Muriel had no passionate sexual feelings. I don't know why, um, but I don't think she, she was ever tormented by that. I think there's, there's a passage in one of her short stories, which I, I quote, 
I can't say, you know, that it is Muriel's mm -hmm. writing autobiographically. I just say, you know, is this autobiographical? But it does strike me that it, as being quite likely that it's autobiographical. And it's, it's in one of those African short stories when she, her heroine is asking herself whether or not she's gay. Um, quite a daring thing to do in a story in the 1960s. <coughs> and um, she comes to the conclusion, no. No, she's not. It's not, it's not. She doesn't fancy one sex or the other. It's just that the sexual act itself is kind of hilarious. <laughs> it's too foolish to be taken seriously. <laughs> so that, that it's that kind of sense of, you know, not wishing to, I think, you know, give herself away in that sort of intimate relationship, physical relationship. I think she wanted to be married. She certainly wanted to marry both Stanford and um, Sargent, her two lovers in the 1940s and the 1950s. Um, and as it happens, both the, she, they left her rather than her leaving them. <coughs> but um, she, I think she wanted to be married rather than to wanting to marry, as it were. I mean, she wanted, she wanted the status of being married because she had a child. She wanted a husband. She also wanted somebody who was going to look after her and, you know, go out to work and leave her free to do the writing. There's that lovely letter that she writes to Stanford when he decides he's going to get married, which doesn't quite work out. Mm. And she says, it's excellent that you can now afford a wife. <laughs> That's right, yes. <laughs> that, 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 that was a it's, it's full of rage, that letter. Right. But, I mean, you know, really she's saying, you bastard. You know, <laughs> you've gone off and married somebody else after all these years yeah. of telling me you didn't have any money. I'm so glad that you can now afford marriage. Yeah. You know. <clears throat> and at the end of it, you know, she, she alters um, you know, what, what might have been a blessing to damnation by simply underlining one word. I uh, can't remember exactly what it was now. But I mean, you couldn't do any better. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, instead of you couldn't do any better, you know, which would have been a compliment to the uh, other woman, it says you couldn't do any better. <laughs> that's one thing I thought, because I read, I read one review of, the, of this. I mean, most of the reviews have been very, very favourable, but there was one review that was saying that sparks humour, that the laughter didn't come through. And I mean, I was laughing all the way through it. She's, I, th I think it's deadly funny. Good. And I think yeah. you, you bring that out, and I think that also is something that comes through in your own writing. Maybe this is a point to open it up to the audience and, and see what, okay. um, whether other people have questions. Here's someone here. Okay. Just following on. Ooh, is this work? Yes, it is working. <laughs> just um, following on for what you were just about to say there, I suppose, was I wondered, Martin, how far um, it has been a comfortable process writing this book about a subject who's very much bound up with Edinburgh. Mm. And this country, even though she herself, um, you know, has kind of conflicted feelings about the place. Mm. How have you found the reception of the book in, in Scotland and in Edinburgh? And how did you find the process as you were writing so, the book? So far, so good. Um, I don't know. I mean, I haven't had Scots people coming up to me and wrestling me by the lapels and <laughs> saying, how dare you? I mean, I think there is, a, there is a, possibly a slight difficulty. I mean, in the sense that I think Edinburgh really does want to adopt Muriel and perhaps doesn't want to acknowledge that she needed to escape Edinburgh. Um, and of course, you would want to adopt her. She's a great writer. Um, but really, I think she's, I mean, what I try to explain in the book is that I think Edinburgh, the city 
as it were, created her as a writer in the same way that Dublin created Joyce. Um, and she had the same kind of difficult relationship with the city that Joyce had with Dublin. Uh, in other words, you know, I mean, Joyce goes on writing endlessly about Dublin, but can hardly bear to go back there. Um, I think it wasn't as bad as that for Muriel, but the, it, it was the source of um, a kind of divided feelings, a kind of cultural schizophrenia, I think, for Muriel. Um, because on the one hand, it was the city which had allowed her the independence, but on the other hand, every time she came back, it's nothing to do with the city, really, it was to do with her family, um, she felt claustrophobic, and she felt um, put upon by her family. So, it's, it's difficult. You've actually got a line in the biography quoting her when she says at the time of Brodie, I'm so occupied, I'm like a country without a history. That's right, yes. When and, she and says it's supposed to be all right. Yes. But it's not quite, you know. <laughs> it's supposed to be all right, you know, being a country without a history. Here's something <coughs> here. Do you think there's one novel, not the prime, don't, mentioned the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, any novel apart from that yeah. which reveals something about Muriel Spark herself? Mm. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, almost all of them. Um, <laughs> um, I think one of the interesting things that seemed to dawn on me as I went along was that um, uh, although you, you very rarely get a direct sort of autobiographical you know, self-portraiture, as it were, um, uh, there's quite a lot of it in the Mandelbaum Gate, as you've already suggested. Um, there's quite a lot of it in Brodie, I must mention that, you know, and, and particularly with uh, Sandy Stranger. Um, and I, I will just mention this because it's, it's quite important, I think. Uh, Shirley Hazard, her great friend in New York, the novelist, <coughs> once asked Muriel why um, such an obviously autobiographical character as Sandy had small eyes. And Muriel's reply was, I used to have small eyes, but they grew wide with experience. <laughs> <coughs> um, but I think, you know, when you look at that novel, for instance, I mean, she's both, she's both in Sandy and she's in Brodie. You can hear Muriel's voice in Brodie. Um, now, to come back to where I started, the, um, the interesting thing that sort of dawned on me was that... Um, that in, in some ways what she wrote about was how she saw other people seeing her. It wasn't how she saw herself, but it was how other people saw her. That was quite accurate, actually. So in the public image, for example, um, I think you know, she was, as one of the witnesses said at the time, she was going through a bad time in relationship to her fame. And she didn't quite know how to sort of negotiate it. She'd suddenly become this huge international celebrity with the publication of Prime of Machine Brodie and then it got bigger and bigger with the, with the play and then the film <coughs> and then the Oscar, you know, it just went on exponentially. Um, and she was living often pretty much alone in, in Rome after New York and was having some difficulties, I think, in, in negotiating that. Um, and what she does in the public image is to, is to talk about how other people saw her, I think, as a kind of... I mean, the central figure is a film star, but you know, it's like being a, a star novelist. Um, I think also in... Um, uh, oh, God, what's it called? <laughs> the, um, 
the abbess of Crewe, that the, in the, the way she characterises the abbess at the centre is, uh, I think, a way of her constructing how a lot of other people saw her. You know, it's kind of autocratic. Um, and um, it's not her. It's not the real her, as it were, but it's how other people saw her. So I think she played with that a lot. Um, the, um, I suppose, obviously, you know, A Far Cry from Kensington and um, Loitering with Intent. Um, I would say Robinson as well, although that's a very oblique and symbolic book. But I would say that that book had a great deal to do with her tortured mental state um, during her breakdown and recovery. It's a kind of symbolic reconstruction of it. Not literal at all, but you know, it feeds off it. Does that help? <laughs> Any other questions here? Um, in the course of uh, writing the biography, you must have had many interviews and uh, discussions with Muriel. Uh -huh. Did you feel that you got to know her and like her in the course of that? Because she always strikes me as a very <coughs> self-contained person, difficult to <coughs> get through to. Uh, yes, she was. I mean, I mean, her books aren't confessional and she wasn't either. Um, so she wasn't the kind of person who would sit down over a glass of wine and pour her heart out to you. And one didn't expect that. Um, uh, so what one did was to uh, interview her uh, having gone through the letters, for example, and saying, you know, you wrote this at, at such and such a time, would you like to comment on it? And sometimes she did and sometimes she didn't. Um, but uh, what you would never get from Muriel would be a kind of confessional outpouring. Um, or even really a desire to ponder very much the sort of psychological subtext of her earlier lives. Um, uh, you know, there, there was stuff that she fed off for her writing. I mean, it was very, very kind of pragmatic of her as well, in a sense, because, um, for instance, when publishers wrote to her asking her for biographical details, she just refused to give any biographical details at all. So, I mean, for instance, after her trip to the Holy Land, on which um, the uh, Mandelbaum Gate was based, um, she, she absolutely refused to allow the publishers to mention the fact that she'd been to the Holy Land. I mean, what? It's not terribly significant, but she, I think she had an attitude that um, her, her private life uh, was her private life, and she, that's what her fiction fed off. And she would enter that realm, it's kind of holy territory, when it suited her. And she didn't see any reason. She obviously intended to write an autobiography, which she eventually did. Um, and there was a lot of money involved in doing that. Um, so she wasn't about to give away any of the secrets, as it were, um, for something that she could write and publish herself and, and make money. I mean, the, th the thing that one has to remember, I think, it's very difficult, I think, for people who aren't professional writers um, and I'm not a professional writer, but you know, I'm lucky enough to have another job like Willie. But um, it's damned hard to earn your living as a writer. It's seriously difficult. So we must be very careful, I think, about saying, well, Muriel wanted to be famous. And, you know, there were various sort of stupid things in the Daily Mail recently. It was kind of you know, saying that 
you know, she was greedy, she wanted fame, you know, she wanted this, she wanted that, you know. Um, it's just silly. Uh, it's extremely hard to maintain a living out of writing for 40 years is extremely difficult. You can't blame anybody for wanting to hang on to their secrets, as it were, for uh, publication and for you know, making a living in, in her old age. Um, so I don't know if that helps, but uh, she, she, yeah, she was a very guarded personality. But over the years, and over the, you know, we had a big correspondence as well. Um, slowly, slowly, you got her to talk about things. But it was a, it was a long process. Because she was also burned very badly by, by, by yeah. men and publicity and yeah. given away of secrets. Yeah. Could you talk about the public image, the dream that she had about Stanford, a baby and suicide? Mm. And the public image is this frightening book about this man, husband and father of this woman's child, who, mm. out of jealousy of her fame, kills himself yeah. and conspires to her ruin. That's right. So you think that, that the public image, I think, is just a fantastic mm. rendering of the position that she felt she'd It's a terrific in. book, actually, I think. I don't know how much it's read these days. Has anybody read the public image? Um, not that many. It is a really it's terrific a book. <coughs> Any other questions? Here's one here and then one here. I wonder, have you spoken to Ian Rankin about Muriel's Park? He's a great admirer and wrote a, a university thesis on her. Hmm. Have you checked with him at all, or has he read your book? No. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. This is a short answer. I know I should have done, but you can't do everything. <coughs> the fact is that uh, he's around the festival quite a bit, so you'd have the opportunity. Yes. <laughs> Well, that's for the revised version. I think there's one other person. <laughs> How do you see the future of the art of the biographer, given the rise of email? Well, it's a good question, that. Um, because, of course, um, this might be one of the last <laughs> biographies where the biographer can draw on a vast archive of written material. Um, the problem with the rise of email, of course, which is implicit in your question, is that it's, it's ephemeral. Um, so uh, some of us will print off emails. Um, uh, frequently we get emails saying, is it really necessary to print this email? Um, but if you want proper records, you have to print it off uh, because, uh, especially if you work for an institution like I do, uh, you know, university, um, after a while they start cancelling them. You can't have an infinite collection of emails. So. Um, it, it's a very interesting question because I think the, um, the written documentation of people's lives is bound to be different. On the other hand, you might say that another kind of documentation might be taking its place, which is that, of course, the mass media generally are increasing in influence. And so there will be, uh, I mean, where you wouldn't, for instance, find Conrad on a TV chat show, uh, we wouldn't find Muriel on one either very much, but uh, you, you would find people like Ian McEwan. Um, it's part of the business of being a writer now that you, um, you do book festivals, you do TV, you do radio. Um, all the kinds of things, of course, that Macmillan's are trying to encourage Muriel to do to get free publicity, and which she refused to do. <laughs> but it's a good question, yeah. I'm not sure if we've got time for another question. You think we might not have? 
one, there's one question here, then we'll make that a quick answer then, okay? I think it's quite a simple question. How did she agree to a biography being written? How did she agree? God knows. Um, uh, in many ways, she was absolutely the last person in the world who would have wanted to have a biography written. So I could only speculate about that. Um, I think, uh, well, a couple of things. I mean, one is that she'd just finished curriculum vitae and she'd found it a terrible slog. She didn't enjoy doing it, really. Autobiography was not a happy form for her. Um, I mean, the result is quite an interesting book, but um, she didn't enjoy writing it. Um, and uh, so there's an element, I think, of, of just wanting somebody to finish the job. So you, know, you, you invite somebody to, to, to do all the research and write the story up, as it were. Um, the, um, the other element of it, I think, was that she did want a monument. Um, I think, I mean, Willie would probably agree with this, that if uh, part of the problem with, with Muriel, which angers me intensely, is that she's not taught very much in universities, at least not in England. Um, and the reason for that is that she's, she doesn't fall into any kind of easy category. She's not an obviously feminist writer, for example, although she is a feminist writer. Um, and one, one of the things which a writer needs, really, to have a kind of afterlife is, in my view, a big biography, or you know, let's hope other biographies as well. Um, uh, the letters, uh, the, there aren't really any diaries to speak of. Well, it'd be a very boring read because they're kind of you know, 3 p.m. Hair, hairdressers kind of um, <laughs> thing. But um, they, uh, generally speaking, that's what a writer needs in order for, as it were, students to have something to get their teeth into for people to write books about her. Um, I remember, strangely, I mean, one of the first things I was given as a job when I got my, got my job at Leicester University in 1979 was I inherited a PhD on Muriel Spark, which was being supervised by George Fraser, who was a friend of Muriel's in Poetry Society days, a great critic and very interesting poet, good Scott. And, um, uh, and he died, and I got his job, effectively. Um, and um, I inherited this PhD student, and I advised the PhD student to give up <laughs> on the grounds that there was no research material. And I think it might have been a sensible suggestion. Yeah, that's excellent. <laughs> Although I think to be modest, because your own biography of Evelyn Waugh is the answer. That was, the co that was what, why, if you read the biography of Waugh, you know why Spark got in touch and said, please do my life. Well, Ticket has come full circle, so I'd like to thank Professor Martin for this heart-to-heart -heart on Muriel's art. And if you could remain seated for a few moments, I will now escort Martin to the appropriately named signing tent, where he will be signing copies of his excellent biography on Scotland's greatest modern writer. Thank you.